As we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Title for today's message is, He is your Creator. He is your Creator. And this is the second message in our series, Behold Your God, which is aimed at correcting and deepening our thoughts of God so that we might worship Him rightly and live for His glory. If you missed the first message from a couple weeks ago, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because I tried to lay the foundation of why this doctrine, the doctrine of God, why this series is so vital for our lives. I confess to you that this was a particularly difficult message to prepare, not because there's uh, not much to say, and I had to think of things to say, but because there's so much to say, and it's difficult to organize the biblical material and limit the focus. But the good news is that uh, our brother Rob Thompson, who you just heard from, uh, he just finished today teaching the Genesis class. And so you can go back to the early part of that class from the fall uh, and listen to uh, that as uh, he goes into much more detail than we will today as to how God created in Genesis chapter 1. Today's message on God as our creator is a critical starting point because not only is it the first thing that God reveals about himself to us on the pages of scripture, but out of the doctrine of God as creator and us as his creatures flows everything else in life. As soon as you press into the creator-creature distinction, the the Word of God begins to reveal the rich treasures of wisdom and understanding of who God is and who we are and how we are to relate with Him and live for Him. The moment that we reject or forget that God is our Creator, a world of chaos ensues. Now, today's message is divided into two parts. First, we'll consider the truth that God is our creator. In fact, that he is the creator of all things, past, present, and future. Second, we'll consider five implications for our lives as a result of the truth that he is the creator. Well, to set our minds on in focus here, let's read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 down to chapter 2, verse 3. Follow along as I read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let them separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Then there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Then there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh, by, by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. This is the word of God. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As we said last time, that's the first sentence in A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Let me read you what comes right after that. 
He writes, quote, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Two paragraphs later, he writes, quote, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know, he says, exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. Unquote. In short, not only is your view of God the most important thing about you, but it's also the most important thing about the church and society. More than that, your view of God is so significant that it's a reliable indicator as, of your future as well as the future of the church and even society. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you can see how Israel's view of God, their right view of God, and their worship of God led to their prosperity and blessing. But their wrong views of God and their false worship led to their destruction. We'll fast forward to our time. The last 60 years since Tozer wrote those words have proven his words in ways that could have been predicted if such predictions were, weren't beyond belief. Some of you were alive 60 years ago, and I can say without fear of contradiction that you nor anyone else had the thought that in 2023, many in our society would be incapable of or otherwise fearful of affirming the basic fact of humanity, that we are born male and female, and that is an unchangeable, fixed reality. And yet, if someone had the mind back then to trace out the trajectory of a society that rejects God as creator, it would have been reasonable to conclude where our society would end up today. That your view of God sets the trajectory of your future was not first noticed by A.W. Tozer in 1961, but rather by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit in the first century. He wrote in Romans 1, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now listen to this. For this reason, because they exchanged the truth of the creator for the creature, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Though Paul's words, of course, apply far beyond the last 60 years, it applies rather clearly 
to the season of history in the last 60, uh, 60 years. Paraphrasing John MacArthur, God gave mankind over first to the lust of their heart, and that's the sexual revolution. Then he gave them over to degrading passions. That's the homosexual revolution. And finally, he gave them over to a depraved mind. We are now in the transgender revolution. The depraved mind is a mind that cannot function properly. It cannot reason according to logic the way that it was intended. It can't make observations and draw logical conclusions. And so it is that we live in a day where a man can compete in men's athletic event and lose badly and very soon after declare himself to be a woman and compete in a woman's event and win easily. And his supporters will be so many that they will silence his detractors. Why? Because our society has rejected God as their creator. And even though all Christians would say, Indeed, God is creator. Many Christians have capitulated to the culture and embraced evolution and therefore have no biblical basis by which to defend God's design for humanity and sexuality. This is just one of many issues that demand that we have a right view of God as our creator. Now, having said that, let's walk through some of what Genesis 1 teaches us about God as creator. You'll have to forgive the high-level overview required for today. Again, you can go back to that Genesis class that Rob uh, worked through the early chapters here in a very detailed and helpful way. But, but notice, first of all, verse 1. Verse 1 of Genesis says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's some question as to whether this is a, a heading, if you will, a summary of all that's to follow, or if it's the first act of creation. I would submit to you that while it, it could be a heading, it seems necessary to conclude that verse 1 is God's first creative act of day one. Namely, that He created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is to say that before verse 1, there was God and nothing else. And as a result of God's action in verse 1, His creation, now there existed a material universe. That very brief statement that God created the heavens and the earth is, is only slightly expanded by other passages that describe what it means that He created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 42 verse 5 says that the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. And He spreads out the earth. Again, Isaiah 45 verse 12 says, uh, the Lord says, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I, I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. The language of stretching out the heavens refers to God's work in Genesis 1.1, whereby He created not just the material substance of the universe, but rather the but in addition the vastness of it well verse 2 then tells us that the earth which now existed by virtue of god's work of creation in verse 1 the earth is created as a canvas ready to be formed and filled now i want you to take careful note of the first 3 words of verse 3 then god said notice that in verse 6, you find the same three words. Then 
God said. And again in verse 9, then God said. And so it is in verse 11 and 14 and 20 and 24 and 26. The words, then God said, reveals to us the manner by which God created all things. Namely, God spoke everything into existence. This is no small detail. The Spirit of God saw fit to repeat this detail throughout the pages of Scripture. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Psalm 148 verses 4 and 5 say, Praise Him, highest heavens, the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Consider Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. And then finally, 2 Peter 3, 5 also says, By the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago. So there can be no doubt, beloved, that the inspired Word of God testifies to the fact that everything that exists apart from God came into existence by divine fiat. God spoke it, and it came to be. This is incomprehensible power. Have you ever tried to create by speaking something into existence? Steak. (laughs) Let there be a car, right? Let there be a house. We, we cannot create by a word. When Genesis 1 repeatedly says, then God said, and it was so, that reveals to us that God's power is beyond what we can imagine. Did you notice what he made by his words? On day one, he created the heavens and the earth. And God created light. On day two, he created the the atmosphere above the earth. On day three, he created the land masses and the sea. And then he created the vegetation and the trees on the earth. On day four, he created the the sun and the moon and their movements to regulate the seasons of the earth. And oh, by the way, he also created the billions of galaxies in the universe. On day five, he created all of the living creatures whose domain is the sea and the sky. And then on day six, he created from the ground all creatures that occupy the land, with the capstone being the creation of mankind in his image and in his likeness, male and female. Having created Adam and Eve, he then commissioned them to multiply and rule as his representatives over all living things and over all the earth. And then finally, on day seven, the Lord rested Which is not to say that he needed a nap after all that uh, work, but it is to say that he ceased from his work of creation and began his work of ruling over his creation. By the word of God, everything came into being. From quarks to quasars, from protons to planets, from mackerels to mammoths, Over the course of those six days, the Lord brought into being the entire physical universe. Its substance, its physical laws, its ordered function. He formed and shaped all things according to His divine and infinite 
wisdom. Jeremiah 10 verse 12 says, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens. In Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon speaks as wisdom personified, saying, When He established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed the circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, and when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside Him as a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. Solomon there speaks of the wisdom with which God created all things. But in John's Gospel, he identifies the person who is the creation-producing Word of God. He writes in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. A few verses later there in John, he identifies the Word as Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the the Son of God, is the Word of God, the instrumental cause of creation. The Apostle Paul affirms Jesus' role in creation by saying in Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Genesis 1 declares to us that all things were created by God by speaking them into existence. And the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus, the Son of God, is that Word. Do you remember what it says again there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? It says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep the waters. Other translations say that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. This is to say, if you will, that the Holy Spirit superintended over creation. Not that God the Father and God the Son needed a supervisor, but perhaps it was the Spirit who observed the work of the Father and the Son in creation and declared, celebrating, it is good. Putting all this together, we can not only say that God created all things, but we can be more specific to say that that all the members of the Trinity were involved. God the Father ordained creation. God the Son enacted creation. And God the Spirit celebrated creation. Consider, though, that God's work of creation, though it was completed in six days in terms of the creation of the heavens and the earth, God did not cease to create. Every time a cell of a sperm and an egg come together, God creates a soul. Isaiah 42 verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord, who created past tense, the heavens and stretched them out, and who spread out past tense, the earth and its offspring, who gives present tense, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. The idea of giving breath and spirit there echoes God's creation of Adam where it says in Genesis 2-7 that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. 
The word breath in Hebrew is nefeshah. The word living being is nefesh, which is really the word for soul. Therefore, for God to give a person breath means that he makes a soul. Now, don't understand, don't misunderstand what this means. It, it's, this does not mean that a baby receives a soul the moment that they take their first breath. This is, this is amazing. People in the womb require the breathing of oxygen and the removal of carbon dioxide just as much as people outside the womb. If the medical professionals among us can forgive this oversimplification, people out of the womb breathe oxygen in its gaseous form. People in the womb bring ox or breathe oxygen in its liquid form as it comes through the umbilical cord and placenta. And then when a baby is born, the, by, by God's incredible design, the liquid quickly uh, dissipates out of the lungs as they breathe in air. Now, according to the UN, every day God is creating about 385,000 souls. They don't quite put it that way, but that's the number that they give. Every day, God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, 385,000 souls, people who never existed before. Not only does God create souls at the moment of conception, he also does a work of creation when he regenerates souls at the moment of salvation. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 speaks of regeneration this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There Ezekiel, or the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, refers to the heart and spirit in, in parallel form, really referring to the inner man, the, the soul. Because of the curse of sin, we're all born with a heart that is dead toward God. Our spirit is dead with regard to being able to relate with God. Our soul is incapable of responding to spiritual truth. Scripture says that the unregenerate of whom we all once were, are dead in their sin, Ephesians 2.1. They hate God, Colossians 1.21. And by virtue of their deadness and their hatred toward God, they cannot please God, Romans 8.8. Since that's the case, for anyone to be able to look on Christ and see His glory and believe on Him, God has to radically transform the heart. And that transform, transformation needed is, is not some simple heart surgery where a spiritual blockage needs to be removed. What we need is a heart transplant such that our old heart is removed and it's replaced with a new heart that is spiritually alive. That's why Paul can say about salvation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. New things have come. So God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Every day He is creating hundreds of thousands of new souls. And He gives a new soul, a new spirit, if you will, as He saves His people. If we had the time, we could consider how Jesus exercised creative power in all of His miracles like when he turned the water into wine, or when he fed tens of thousands of people, when he raised the dead or healed the lame. 
And I want to direct your attention to what Scripture reveals will be God's final act of creation. And that's revealed in Isaiah 67, verse 17, where it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. This statement speaks about what will happen after the millennial reign of Christ. Namely, after Jesus reigns on this earth for a thousand years from Jerusalem, Satan will be released from the abyss. He will deceive the nations and prepare an assault on the kingdom of Christ. But before that battle begins, God will send fire down from heaven, consuming all of his enemies. Then, all unbelievers throughout history will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be cast into the lake of fire. At that point, the present heaven and the present earth will be destroyed with intense heat, it says in 2 Peter 3.12. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth, a new universe in which all believers will dwell with God forever. Unlike this universe, which was made in six days, the scripture implies that the new heavens and the new earth will be made really in an instant. And there will be vast differences between this universe and the new one. For example, the new Jerusalem, according to uh, Revelation 21, reaches the heights three or four times higher than where our satellites currently orbit. And the footprint of that new Jerusalem is more than half the size of the United States. That indicates to me that the new earth will be significantly larger than the present one. As well, Revelation 21 says that there will be no sun, no moon, no night, and no seas, which indicates that the physical laws of the new universe will be different than what we experience today. We also learn, by the way, in that chapter, that the most precious jewels of this earth will be the concrete of the new earth which indicates that the material substance of the new earth will be vastly different than the current one. Believe, beloved, God is the creator of all things, he, and he created you. It's an understatement to say that in God's creative work, God demonstrates creativity and power beyond our comprehension. Paul says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And that's why Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The beauty and the magnificence and the resplendent glory of God's present creation is just a glimpse of God's creativity and His power. God is your Creator and the Creator of all things. Amen. Well, if God is the Creator and His creative works demonstrate His glory and power and majesty, how should we live? I want to walk you through five implications of, that rise out of this truth that God is our Creator. Five implications. Number one, that God is the creator of all things means that we must worship Him rightly. We must worship Him rightly. This is perhaps the most obvious and yet most neglected implication. Psalm 148, as I mentioned earlier, calls all creation to worship the Lord. Why? Because He commanded and they were created. 
When we sit and look at a glorious sunrise or a sunset, we cannot help but be in awe of God's glory as it's on display. When we see those pictures of distant galaxies, we we can't help but be uh, humbled by our smallness and give God glory for His creative power. According to the living creatures and the 24 elders in heaven, God's work of creation is the reason that he is worthy of worship. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Tragically, creatures on earth don't agree. Again, Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. We worship and serve the creature when we take what is made by God, remake it and distort it in our mind, and behave toward it, hoping to derive from it what only God can provide. And to aid in this false worship, mankind often makes physical idols merely to represent what idols they already cherish in their own heart. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets after Isaiah. In Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet Jeremiah makes a mockery of idols and idolatry. And he does it by contrasting them with God, who is the creator and therefore the only one worthy to be worshipped. This chapter, chapter 10, is God speaking to the nation of Israel about their idolatry and a portion of it The portion that we'll read is actually replicated, copied in chapter 51 as God speaks to the nation of Babylon for their idolatry. But follow along as I read, starting in verse 11, to see the contrast between idols and the Creator. He says in verse 11, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, And by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult in the waters of the heavens. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. At the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob, that's a reference to God, the portion of Jacob is not like these. He is the maker of all. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. It is insanity and stupidity to worship created things in exchange for the Creator. He alone is worthy of worship because He alone is able to provide all that we need. And He's proven that by creating all things. We must worship Him rightly. Implication number two, that God is our Creator means that we must submit to Him humbly. We must submit to Him humbly. Turn over to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a psalm of 
a praise to the Lord and a call to trust in the Lord and submit to Him. In verses 1 through 5 uh, is a call to praise the Creator. And then verse 6 calls us to worship our Creator. Look at verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Again, we can say that because God is Creator, we must worship Him rightly. But then the psalmist continues and calls us to submit to our Creator. Look again at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah when in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me though they had seen my work. This is talking about that time when Israel had moved on from Sinai and they were journeying toward uh, the land of Canaan and they camped at a place where there was no water. And instead of submitting to the purposes of God and trusting this God who had proven himself time and time again by miraculous works, they complained. They said to Moses, why now have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This was not simply a, a lack of trust. This was a direct challenge to the purposes of God. Well, in God's patience and grace, He miraculously provided water. And it says in Exodus 17.7 that Moses named that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So when Psalm 95 calls us to submit to our Creator, the call is to recognize that when He commands us to do something that we don't understand, instead of complaining like Israel did, we must submit. Isaiah 45 verse 9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or will the thing you are making say, he has no hands? That last phrase, he has no hands, seems to be an idiomatic way of accusing the potter of being unskilled. That's what we do when we question God. We question his ability to do what's right. It is a guarantee that we will not understand what God is up to in our lives. What God is doing is almost always a mystery to us. And God has no obligation to explain Himself to us. And we have no right to question Him, right? We saw that in Job two weeks ago. As our Creator, He does all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1. And we must submit both to His providential will as it is worked out uh, in the course of our lives, and we must submit to His revealed will in Scripture as to how we should live. The book of Ecclesiastes, as you know, is uh, Solomon's report after years of research looking for meaning and purpose apart from God. He found none. And so he concludes in Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. In other words, he's saying, don't try and figure life out on your own. Don't think that you can come up with a better plan than God has for you. Submit to your Creator when you're young 
and live under his sovereign rule. Implication number three. That God is our creator means that we must trust him confidently. We must trust him confidently. We must worship him rightly. We must submit to him humbly. And third, we must trust in him confidently. Specifically, we must trust him in the face of danger or in the midst of suffering. When we face difficulty, it's our natural tendency and sinful tendency to forget God and become anxious and fearful. But we must remember that as our creator, God's, God is more powerful than our enemies. And his power can protect us from any harm that he does not intend for our good. Turn over to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. The book of Isaiah repeatedly draws on the doctrine of God as creator to comfort Israel while they are experiencing judgment. And Isaiah 51 is part of a larger section that focuses on the promise of salvation. And listen to what uh, the Lord says to Israel in Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of your oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of your oppressor? The Lord is saying here, if I, the creator who made all things, am your protector, who can bring any harm? to you. Why are you afraid of anyone or anything? As creator, there is no one more powerful than God. And his power, just so we're clear, is not like the difference between the bloodied champion fighter who just barely beat out his opponent. No, it's more like the difference between the almost 10-foot battle-hardened Goliath and the little tiny ant in the field. Scripture says that the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's an understatement. So we ought to say with David in Psalm 56 verse 11, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? God is your creator so you can trust him. When you are exhausted from unjust treatment, Remember the words of Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Are you suffering as a Christian? 1 Peter 
says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When our trust in the Lord is tested, when our faith is challenged, we can look to God who made us and remember that He does all things well, even when we don't understand it in the moment. So in the face of danger or in the midst of suffering, we can trust Him confidently because He is our Creator. Implication number four. That God is our Creator means that we must imitate Him closely. We must imitate Him closely. You can't speak of God as our Creator and not talk about the reality that we are made in His image. Again, Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And though the fall of Adam and Eve marred that image, it did not erase it completely. For it was after the flood in Genesis 9 that the Lord said to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood by, his man, uh, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. This is the institution of capital punishment. It's, God, it's God's declaration that murdering someone is wrong, if for no other reason than that men and women are made in God's image and are thus imbued with inherent value and dignity. And more than that, to murder someone who's made in the image of God is to attack the one in whose image we are made. But it's not just murder that is an attack on God. Listen to Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The word taunt there could be translated to defy or revile or despise. So to oppress the poor is to reject the truth of Proverbs 22.2. The rich and the poor have this in common. They are both uh, the, the Lord is the maker of them all. So those who oppress the poor defy God by thinking that only certain people are worthy of being treated with dignity and justice. Unlike those who oppress, God himself is not a respecter of persons, meaning he, in most respects, treats all people alike. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes, to, he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So our Creator models for us how to treat all people, even our enemies, with dignity and value and love. God doesn't merely tolerate those who hate him. He doesn't begrudgingly give to those who despise him things to enjoy. No, James 1.17 says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. According to MacArthur's commentary, that phrase, Father of lights, is an old Jewish reference to God as creator. And so if it's true that our creator is the giver of every good thing, we should be like him in showing love to all people. How much more is it true 
that if, if, we're, if all people are to do that, that we who are new creatures in Christ should imitate him. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. And then it says a few, a few verses later, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, when we imitate God at a, at a high level, as redeemed and the, and the recreated people of God, or even if we just imitate God at a basic level because He is our Creator, we are living out the very purpose for which we were made. Namely, to, to represent Him to the world around us. We were made in His image and likeness, and those who are saved are recreated in righteousness and holiness to show the world who our Creator is and what He is like. So we ought to imitate him closely. So that God is our creator means that we must worship him rightly. We must submit to him humbly. We must trust in him confidently. And we must imitate him closely. Finally, number five, that God is our creator means that we must anticipate him eagerly. We must anticipate him eagerly. Turn over with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is such, such an encouraging passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter wrote his second letter to remind believers of vital truths that they would need to remember in the future when he would not be there with them. And one of the truths that he reminded them of is of the Lord's coming judgment and salvation. But he warns that people in the future will try to dissuade you from the reality of coming judgment. Look at what he says there in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly Men. So the same God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence is the same God whose word is preserving the heavens and the earth for judgment. Look at what he says in verse 11. Since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, you remember what I said? What will happen after this present earth and heaven are destroyed? God will create a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he says there in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. God created the heavens and the earth for the purpose of accomplishing his plan of redemption 
thereby putting his glory on display. When that plan is complete, the creator will do away with this realm and he will create a new realm where all those who've been redeemed will dwell. And the key feature of the new heavens and the new earth is this. Revelation 21 verse 3. God will dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I don't know about you, but that is something I can't wait to see and experience. Beloved, these are just five implications of the fact that God is our Creator. We must worship Him rightly. We must submit to Him humbly. We must trust Him confidently. We must imitate Him closely. And we must anticipate Him eagerly. Do you know this God who created you? Have you submitted your life under His sovereign rule? Back on Easter Sunday, we studied Acts 17, where Paul declares to the people of Athens, this God who created all things. And he ended that message by saying, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising Him from the dead. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ who died to pay for sin and He conquered death and He is alive and He calls out to all to believe on Him. You can know your Creator in a personal, loving, and life-giving way. He is more glorious than we can imagine. So believe on Him. Know Him. Trust Him. Bow the knee to Him. You can know Him today. Let's pray. Oh God, our Creator, we have just scratched the surface of what You have revealed about Yourself. Lord, if it's true that our future can be predicted based on our knowledge of You and our view of You, may it be true of us that in the next months and years, that we will be found to trust You more, to worship You rightly, that we would be submitting to You increasingly, and that we would be eagerly anticipating Your coming. God, we acknowledge that we, as much as we hate that we do this, we often forget that You are our Creator. We often think that we are in control of our lives and that we are self-made. Lord, forgive us for forgetting. Forgive us for rejecting these truths. Cause us, Lord, to always remember that we are your creatures so that you would receive the glory that is due to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.